Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Nonprofit U, a forum where nonprofit stakeholders can share lessons learned and discuss the latest developments in the industry. My name is Valerie Leonard, your host. I'm a consultant to nonprofits and I specialize in community and organizational development. I work with nonprofit organizations to help them make a stronger impact to their clients and communities. You can find Nonprofit U on Facebook and Twitter. I encourage you to comment early and often using today's hashtags, Nonprofit U, Blocks Together, or Conventional Wisdom. You can also leave comments on blogtalkradio.com forward slash nonprofit underscore U. The chat room is open, and you can post comments and questions. In order to use the chat room, you must open a listener-only account. You'll find a link to open the account on the episode page, and you can also email me questions at consulting at com or send messages through Facebook and Twitter. You'll find a Nonprofit U fan page on Facebook, and the Twitter account is at Nonprofit U. We'll be taking questions by phone and from our chat room at about the 30-minute mark. If you're in our chat room right now, you can start posting. Um, We'd like for you to identify yourselves and let us know what brings you here today. Call-in number is 347-884-8121. Today's episode is Conventional Wisdom, a three-prong approach to community development. We'll hear updates on the work of Blocks Together and then talk about their upcoming community convention and Illinois gubernatorial candidates meet and greet. Again, we encourage you to call in with questions and participate in live chats at about the 30-minute mark. The call-in number is 347-884-8121. Nonprofit communication, marketing professionals, as well as Community organizers are especially encouraged to call in and share your stories and ask questions. Today's guest is Cecile Carol DeMello. She is the co-director of Blocks Together. Blocks Together, or BT, is a membership-based community organizing group in the West Humboldt Park community in Chicago on the west side. Since 1995, BT has empowered residents to work together for systemic changes that bring concrete improvement to their lives. BT tackles social justice issues relating to education, housing, criminalization of our youth. Some of their most notable work includes participating on the Chicago Educational Facilities task force which advocates for equity and transparency around school facilities, closures, and boundaries, and that work is about to become even more relevant as we speak. They have also worked with local school councils and local community-based organizations around the city on issues surrounding school utilization and closures, advocacy around tax reform and equitable school funding, and supporting a referendum for an elected school board. That referendum passed um, significantly, but uh, for whatever reason, our legislature and mayor are not on board. Blacks Together began their work on TIF in earnest in 2008 when they wanted to better understand the relationship between TIF and school funding and school closure. So without further ado and without further 
editorial, I just want to welcome you and thank you for being on Nonprofit You today, Cecile. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. And before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work with Blacks Together? Sure, Valerie, and thanks for having me. Um, I've been organizing um, Southern College, um, and in 2008, I joined Blocks Together as the education organizer. Um, I had been previously doing some parent organizing work prior to coming to the course, and I really enjoyed mm-hmm. it. Um, from there, I was part of many community and citywide efforts, public education in Chicago, and I became the co-director at Blocks Together at 25 years old, and since then have wow. continued our education work, but have also supported BT's growth alongside co-director Carolina Gallete. (laughs) And for those of you who are looking at her picture, she doesn't look a day over 18, if that old. (laughs) And if she's not 25 anymore, I'm jealous. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you lead Blacks Together's education work and you staff their education committee. Can you give us an overview of how the education committee works? Well, actually, all of uh, Black Together's work is in working groups or committees. Um, And Mm -hmm. I see it more as a working group of residents uh, where we collaborate on what's happening in the community and we brainstorm our ways to address those issues by looking at different organizing and policy ways. Um, So with that, Mm -hmm. we create long-term and short-term goals and continue to work on those issues, taking advantage of any coalition and other campaign work throughout the city or locally that can support the work moving forward. Um, There is a staff person Mm -hmm. that supports each working group. Um, So, for example, in our Economic Justice Committee, we've been working on uh, creating local control on public dollars to create more economic opportunities. In our youth work, young people at Blocks Together have been working to address violence in the schools to prison pipeline. And then our education work, which we're talking about today, through our parent network has been working to address funding inequalities for local schools and how to bring more resources um, and local democracy into our schools. Okay, that's awesome. So I I guess as a follow-up, the way this works is you have a staff supporting the work. Do you have residents who are actually leading those committees and and staff is supporting that work or does staff lead the committee? Okay. Well, I see it. It's more like a collaboration. So the staff is kind of here okay. for technical assistance to support those residents' um, goals um, and mm-hmm. provide any leadership development if needed. Um, one of the cool things about Blacks Together is the majority of our staff is hired from the community. So it's the community mm-hmm. working with the community. Okay, that is awesome. I I really love that concept. And speaking of community, can you give us an overview of what's going on in the schools in Humboldt Park? And again, Humboldt Park is the community in which Blocks Together is located. Yeah, Blocks Together um, works closely with a number of schools in West Humboldt Park. In those schools, um, there has been a lot of impact with the recent budget crisis over the last two years with Chicago Public Schools. 
and it definitely has impacted their ability to provide optimal resources for their students, many of them um, with unique needs coming from a low-income community. In some cases, those instabilities have, create, are, have been created, too, not just with the budget crisis, but the impacts of school actions in the last few years in this community has had an impact that's very visible. Um, in -hmm. some of the schools that have received um, school actions, they've suffered since those actions with um, uh, uh, issues around leadership and even their um, academic progress has changed um, and not for the positive. So it's um, Mm -hmm. very important for our work to continue to hold um, district leadership and um, our local leadership accountable in trying to use best, Mm -hmm. best practices like prioritizing funding to schools in need and working hard to stabilize community um, schools. Yeah, I I think that's really interesting. Um, Back in, what, 2012, when we were going through this first round of major, major school closings. I mean, we've had school closings before, but 2012 was just awful. Um, When we had a record 50 schools to close, you know, when I look back at that testimony, you know, people testify over and over again that school closures are not the answer, even if people have so-called better options or students have better options when they go to these schools that are performing better. I guess at the time, the dynamics of having to absorb new students with a different culture and trying to merge two cultures and just the disruption you know, altogether can cause you to lose several months, if not, you know, close to a year in terms of achievement. Have you guys looked at the impact of the achievement? It sounds like you you did. It sounds like it's really kind of slowing progress. Yeah, we've closely monitored a few schools that were impacted um, by school actions, and um, there has there are some cases here in West Humble Park where their scores have yet to be close to what they were prior to, and we're talking about some high-level achieving schools. And then also from our work with working with parents, there's also something to be said about the climate and culture shift that happened and how that mm-hmm. impacts the academics, but also things that you don't see on paper, like how people feel and how the children feel in the school and how that shifted after the school actions and just the amount of resources that's needed to recuperate from Mm -hmm. Um, that big culture shift uh, could have been improved upon um, after the 2013 school closures for sure. Okay. Yeah, so so 2012, the fall of 2012, and the close in 2013. Thank you for clarifying. Okay, so you work in Humboldt Park, but you live in Inglewood. So, I mean, you're living this every day. You're working through it every day, you're not really getting a rest. And for those of you who are not from Chicago, Inglewood is a community on Chicago's south side. It's um, predominantly African-American. If my memory serves me correctly, it's um, predominantly low-income and redeveloping. And in 2013, you know, communities like North Lawndale, where I'm from, was ground zero and this year, Inglewood seems to be ground, I guess, below zero. I mean, you, you, this seems to be worse than um, what happened in Lawndale, where it, it seems that um, four of the six, if, if I'm not mistaken, of the school actions are in 
Inglewood. So, so can you tell us what's going on in Inglewood and you know, bring us up to speed? Um, sure, I could just share with the proposal that came out on December 1st, the uh, mandated date for any actions to be announced. Um, the proposal released by Chicago Public Schools includes the closure of all four um, non-charter high schools into one, uh, uh, and then create one uh, new public high school to replace those um, seats. The decision has been attributed to the low enrollment at the local public high schools, which um, has been Kind of something that a lot of folks in the education circles have been talking about is the low enrollment numbers at a lot of public high schools and what to do about um, that. And so there's a lot of stuff going on around that. Um, and what I'm just hoping is that um, Chicago Public Schools, whatever the decision is made and however the community moves forward, is making um, is going to well resource and be flexible with how any school transactions look moving forward, period. And as we spoke before, you know, you were in on the ground floor when school closings were announced in 2012. They were actually closed in 2013, you know, that June. And that was primarily, you know, on the west side where you were doing a lot of work, even though you did do advocacy around the city. What advice would you give to parents and other community stakeholders who are faced with school closures and other actions that could have a negative impact on the community? Well, first thing, um, the December 1st deadline did not always exist. That was part of the work um, I and my colleagues did on the task force um, so that parents had an option um, to go to another school and beat those deadlines that happened prior to schools were closing and the announcement would come that they were finally closing in February, and families would be stuck in whatever option that was, and that's not fair. Um, you enroll your mm-hmm. kid on the first day of school expecting them to finish that school year, in the case of a high school, expecting them to do all four years, and then things change, we should leave some control to parents. So that's one of the mandates that the law came in. So one of the things I will say mm-hmm. to parents is if you don't like the way this instant looks, and if you want to find another option for your children, you have a you have some time to do that now, and that's one of the reasons that law was created. Um, preparing for transitioning planning while continue to do work around your school advocacy, it's it's hard, but you have to kind of do both, and that was a learning lesson for us. Um, I will say, BT has worked hard to keep a number of schools open. Some we won, some we didn't. However, keeping the new schools accountable is important as well. Um, There were a lot of promises Mm -hmm. made um, in our experience um, once a school was closed or turned around that were not facilitated. And so on many occasions we had to kind of organize ourselves again and go back to those school leaderships and the school district and say, hey, this is not what we were told was going to happen and this is not what was going to be promised or to stop practices that we didn't think was fair to those students after the school action. So it's a little bit of preparing for the now and preparing for the future impact as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want to remind our listening audience that you're listening to Nonprofit U, and we're speaking with Cecile Carol DeMello. She's the co-director of Blocks Together. We'll be taking questions from our listening audience in chat room at about the 30-minute mark. In fact, if you're in the chat room, you can start posting questions now. The call-in number is 347-884-8121. Again, that number is 347-884-8121. 
So, Cecile, when you were on the show last, we were talking about the intersection between tax increment financing and education and some of the impacts to Chicago public schools and how that was really one of the key drivers to the work that you're doing in education. Can you share some updates on that work? Sure. Um, Just this past year in 2016, Blacks Together um, parents organized a petition drive to stop the planned opening of a selective enrollment school in the 27th Ward that would be funded, its capital budget would have been funded by tax increment financing. Um, So what what the parents did was started pointing out to the saturation of selective enrollment schools in the proposed site for that selective enrollment school to show how this would be an inequity of the TIF funds being used in that part of the ward. And we went through every single Mm -hmm. school in the community and pointed to the capital needs in those schools and showed that with the same Mm -hmm. amount of millions of dollars that would have been invested in this capital improvement, we can send some TLC to the schools that exist now in the ward and are servicing a lot of the students um, versus what a selective enrollment school could do. And um, in 2016, later on that year, um, the the school was taken off the list as a proposed capital project. Um, And we're continuing to, to work with schools around what is a capital need, what's the difference between capital and operating, and how both are struggling to get funds while we still kind of make citywide decisions with those same TIF funds that kind mm-hmm. of only support certain populations at the expense of others. And it's about informing our parents to continue to have those conversations with their elected officials. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is awesome. So just to back up, uh, so schools have two types of budgets, right? Um, I heard you say operational budget as well as the capital budget. For those of us who are not as familiar, can you break down the difference between the operational budget you know, and let us know what types of expenses are in that versus sure. the capital budget? So the Wait, capital thanks. budget is helping with the facility itself. It can open a new school, as in building it, and it can also go to repairs and renovations of schools. Um, okay. Tax increment financing fund, as it exists now in the state of Illinois, when it's used for schools, it can only be used for capital repair dollars, and it would take mm-hmm. um, the mayor saying that the that there was a surplus and reissuing kind of those TIF funds to CPS to put it towards operational. But when you're looking at a TIF fund and it's something that's being funded by TIF, that's going only to capital. Our operational funds are mm-hmm. the, the funds that pay the teachers and the lights and the principals, and those funds uh, are the funds that are coming from city taxes and, and, and state taxes mm-hmm. and grants and things like that. Yeah, and my pet peeve with the way they actually budget is they still, you know, if I'm not mistaken, I've been away from this for about a year or so now, um, this per-pupil funding, mm-hmm. which really has nothing to do with the actual cost of running a building. You know, different school buildings are structured differently, and as a result, they have different cost structures. Not only are they designed differently, you know, physically, but they also have different programs. Some schools may need more funds than others. And then when you're working with low-income children, you know, we're still looking at other entitlement funds. 
And and I think this whole per pupil thing is really a disservice, you know, because you're not really matching the schools with the prop, you know appropriate cost they have. Yeah, and I think that's some of the crisis that's happening in a lot of communities where populations have left in the last couple of mm-hmm. decades, and now these schools don't have the same capacity that they used to have, but the needs are still there and where there could be an opportunity to use those buildings to maximize needs. Unfortunately, the per-pupil funding ends up kind of penalizing those schools, and it mm-hmm. it um it makes it harder for them to get resources when you have, quote, unquote, low enrollment, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think, too, and the charter schools have actually, well, they've gained funding as a result, you know, over the time. You know, they have actually increased their funding at the expense of public schools, you know, traditional public schools. And, you know, I personally think that's unfair. Right, right, and I think that's where there's so much frustration is because we see new schools being built, I mean, right after the massive 2013 school closures, a couple of months after they were Mm -hmm. facilitated in May of that year, we opened up um, over a dozen new charter schools that same year. So it just makes it hard for people to rationalize this big disruption just happened in my life, but I see mm-hmm. other students being accommodated. And, it can, and, that's, and that's, the, that's what's happening, and that's the difficulty of the rationale around school closures. Okay. And what about school turnarounds? Is that still something that, that's on the table where you go in, you know, and treat schools like a corporation, you fire the whole staff, bring in younger um, less experienced staff, and then on top of that, you give them extra per pupil funding, and then you give them them meaning AUSL um, a management fee. Is is that still going on, or is that on the way? I don't know if there's been any new turnarounds announced. I don't think so. Um, but we still have a lot of existing um, AUSL turnaround schools in the West Side. There's some in West Humble Park. There's some on the South Side as well, and um, in some of the cases, they don't always have the most highest scores post the school action. Um, and so that goes to, to get to saying, like, who's accountable to those contracts and um, uh, who, who works to fix them when things still aren't going right. Um, and mm-hmm. I know that's been a struggle for our organization and some of the AUSL schools we work with here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think bottom line, if you can minimize the disruption for the students, you know, I don't care if it's school closures, if it's merging schools, if it's co-locations where you have um, two separate schools in one building. You know, I, I just think we need to do something to minimize the disruption for the students as well as the parents. I think we'll get better educational outcomes. Yeah, and I will say um, some school districts where enrollment because the population has changed um, they have created what's called a joint use policy where they try mm-hmm. to create a joint use of the building space until enrollment increases 
um, so that mm-hmm. those students can stay in the building. Um, there are some instances in the city, and I think we'll see more, where we close schools, but population is happening again. Those areas are repopulating. Now we have to build new mm-hmm. buildings where we just close them. And so joint use policy is something that we've been advocating on the task force for the district to hone in uh, uh, into, and especially where we have mm-hmm. the data that shows that things are changing in those communities and we still need to accommodate those new families or um, uh, families that the child, the, the children age, uh, school age children are still young and now will be mm-hmm. going to school within three or four more years, right? So. Oh, okay, great. That, that's a perfect segue into the next question. Chicago Educational Facilities Task Force, is that still operational? That's a great question. Um, The law that created the task force has no sunset, but the task force hasn't met in a while, but has been working on potential projects to support improved practices and policies around facilities, um, even Mm -hmm. still. Uh, We did a lot of public hearings to gain impact, and if you go on the uh, Illinois State Board of Education website, you'll find all of our reports, all of our findings, all of our Mm -hmm. minutes, Um, and all of our research, um, including our last report in 2014, which was a comprehensive report to the Illinois General Assembly about what needs to be changed in state law around facilities. Okay, and just um, if you could back up and give us a little history about what the task force is, how it came to be about, and, you know, I, I know that you guys have done a lot of work, but, you know, as briefly as you can, give us a, a little ground on how it started. Sure. The task force was started in response to a state push for a moratorium on school closures uh, in 2009. And uh, the compromise with the state legislature in Chicago Public Schools was to create a task force that would create best practices around how to do facilities, planning for new facilities and school actions. Um, and from those 2009 to 2010, we did a citywide focus groups and community meetings to figure out what should be in the law. And this time, uh, CACs, mm-hmm. Community Action Councils, were formed as well. Um, the task force then cr- drafted legislation, actually, um, from all of the, the information we got from communities about how facilities should be run. And we were able to pass legislation August of 2011, um, where um, a lot of what we tried to advocate for was put in the December 1st mandate, a master facility plan for the district, um, uh, the uh, transparency around building conditions, all of that stuff came out of the state law. So it's one of the ways to bring more transparency around school access. Even transition plans are mandated under the law, which is what we all need Mm -hmm. to be keeping a close eye on in the next couple of months. Awesome. And I just want to commend you for your role in that work, that was all volunteers, um, everybody on that, even though they were some elected officials, right, some community people and a volunteer consultant, even though people were giving of their time over and above what they do for a living, some very high-quality legislation and policy work came out of that. And I, I really, really do appreciate the time you guys spent and the difference that you you made for the time that you were really, really active. Thank you. It was such hard climate, too, so it was hard to get through what we wanted to get through, but I'm glad for some of the victories that we were able to get through. Yeah, and and I remember that last report. You you know, you you guys really went out on a limb 
you know, and, and when I say went out on a limb, I'm not saying that the work was not accurate, but, you know, at the time the report was published, you know, it was not popular to challenge Rahm Emanuel, you know, the mayor of Chicago. You know, he seemed to have had the support from the president, um, significant support from the political establishment, and here's this upstart group, you know, that was empowered by the legislature to to actually do, um, you know, policy analysis instead of being a rubber stamp. And, you know, looking at the people, I kind of knew it wasn't going to be a rubber stamp, but many of those task forces end up being um, rubber stamps for existing policy, but this group has not been that, and, and I really thank you. And I think it's probably more of a need for them than ever. Yes. And um, as I mentioned before, you know, Mayor Rahm Emanuel and Chicago Public Schools, they weren't supportive of the task force, but, you know, as you mentioned, you were able to really uh, make some significant changes in policy over a very short time, and it was not easy. Um, can you share some of the lessons? I know you gave us an update on the work, but can you tell us what some of the lessons you learned just from working on that task force? Well, some of the updates, um, especially in the report in 2014, was um, a comprehensive report on how the state legislation moved forward um, looking at the issues, after the 2013 massive school closures and other facility issues that have impacted students, it seems to be more of a need for comprehensive planning and appropriate data that informs those plans. Uh, it's important mm-hmm. to remind people that uh, the changes to the CPS facility plans and policies, like the December 1st deadline, the mandate for a master facility plan, which is on their website, and the required transition plans, they came all from the work of the task force that was Mm -hmm. passed through the state legislature. So for me, the biggest lesson is that the state has an important role over the local issues and that they were able to create protections. And I think sometimes we always think real local about CPS, but our state uh, legislators in this scenario was a huge ally to the work um, of reforming Mm -hmm. CPS facility policies and practices. Okay, that's awesome. So Locks Together also believes in keeping the village, so to speak. So can you share with our listening audience what you mean by keeping the village? Okay, so uh, Blocks Together launched a program called the Village Keepers, which was started to expand restorative practice work into the community while intertwining Mm -hmm. trauma-informed strategies as a leadership development tool in the community. So Blocks Together has had over 10 years of work around restorative justice with young people and in school settings, but there's something to be said Mm -hmm. about once that student is no longer inside the school building, how are they supported in making restorative decisions? And um, and the training that participants go through, they walk away with a number of tools to reduce conflict and like and ways to support fellow fellow neighbors in times of crisis. 
and provide resources mm-hmm. when others in the community are in need. So they learn about jobs. They learn about mental health resources. They go through a crisis um, training. Um, and then they also learn about peace circles and the root of restorative practices so that they are the person people come to when they're struggling. And we're hoping that it ends up re- reducing violence because they have these new people that can help them in times of need. Okay, awesome. So when we talk about trauma, when we talk about restorative practice, um, one, I, I guess my question would be, would you include school closures in that trauma? I, I can imagine that that could be a traumatic experience. Yeah, you actually got me a little emotional because after the 2013 school closures, I know I had a hard time. Um, mm-hmm. It was I had I had witnessed um, some really beautiful communities um, uh, have everything changed. And um, it was hard for me, and I didn't go to the school, you know. But these are my mm-hmm. these are my colleagues, these are my peers I was working with, and to mm-hmm. see the uncertainty and the negative impact that happened in a lot of the cases, um, I can only imagine how it was for the students. But I know just from my personal level, it took. Um, I'm still working through what happened and why it happened, so I can only imagine. Mm-hmm. But I do agree that something like that can be traumatizing. Right, and I really believe that that's going to have a long-term impact and not the short-term impact that, you know, our politicians who are pushing this, you know, would have us to believe. You don't just get over closing a community institution, you know, and move on with your life. You know, that that just doesn't happen. But that's me editorializing So back to your restorative justice work, can you um, explain for our listening audience what exactly is a restorative and what well, works uh, different ways in different communities? Well, for us in the simplest form, restorative practices are um, how do I – teaching people to think about the concept of healing and hurt and repair um, mm-hmm. in a community context. So how do I fix things when I have made a mistake and I've hurt folks? Mm-hmm. And how do, I re- how do I create a solution if I was the person that was hurt? How do you communicate in that type of space? Uh, and then how do mm-hmm. you create solutions that are not punitive in that type of space? And it goes from formal to a, like a restorative justice program to an informal mm-hmm. to I'm your neighbor and you did something wrong. How do we sit down and have the dialogue and the tools to have an effective dialogue to mm-hmm. find a solution. Oh, okay. And for you, um, the work that Blocks Together has done has really been focused more around the peace circles within the schools, or have you, you know, gone beyond, you know, the peace circles? Yeah, actually, we started um, an elementary school program, which at the time was unheard of, um, where we had peace oh, circles great. and a peer jury program. And in the oh, peer jury wow. program, the students were trained to be judge and jury to create fair consequences for infractions at the school. Um, we're now back at that same school um, doing trainings with parents, and students about how to use restorative practices in an informed 
in a trauma-informed way. One of the things that, mm-hmm. because of our practicing for a couple of years, you have these restorative dialogues, and then trauma comes up as a mm-hmm. reason for why people have did hurt or harm. And how do you wrestle with that, right? And um, so mm-hmm. right now we are in the midst of doing a 6th, 7th, and 8th grade program and a parent program oh, where wow. we're talking about trauma and how it is um, – can be intertwined with restorative practices to be aware of trauma and how do you create a trauma-sensitive space was just actually our mm, uh, session that happened on Friday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, you guys are always on the cutting edge. Every, every time I talk to you, it, it's something new, something different, you know, and, and I applaud you. Thanks, Valerie. So uh, another thing, you guys, and when I say you guys, I'm talking about blocks together, um, you're also known for your work in collective economics. So can you describe your framework for collective economics in the community? It's actually more from a social justice perspective, but BT's economic Mm -hmm. uh, justice work includes, you know, the underlying uh, principle of distributing funds that support communities' own development and seeing that we have mm-hmm. the economic means, um, and we do that by moving the powers that be to have those funds. And the uniqueness about Chicago and about West Humble Park is that it has a tax increment financing district that is mm. public dollars. And so the, the thought process around redistributing those funds is a part of that economic justice work. hmm Awesome. So when Kata was here, she was talking about some of the work you guys were doing in PV or participatory budgeting. Um, can you talk a little bit? You know, I, I know that Kata, right? She she's the one who kind of heads that, but you know, you guys work, you know, hand in glove. <laughs> it, it's almost seamless. You you know, even though your education, you're also you know, on the forefront of a lot of... Oh, yeah, everyone does a little bit of everything here. Yeah, everyone <laughs> does a little everything. And, um, well, the the PB piece was um, an opportunity to use participatory budgeting, which is people making collective decisions on where public funds should go through, like, a voting process. And um, a lot of times in Chicago it's done through municipal funds, through the um, participatory budget of Chicago, in our case, we didn't do it with the ward menu money um, because the TIF is saturated in this high need part of the West Side. We worked with Alderman Burnett to do it with um, two million dollars of tax increment financing funds along the lines of the economic development um, goals for the TIF. So um, it oh, was wow. job. Um, job training, beautification, and we had about, I think, 12 or 13 projects. Uh, Only eight went to the final round. And we had this amazing voting process happen in the community to select the top Mm -hmm. projects that were created by community members. And now we're starting to see the the fruits of our labor as some of those institutions receive their funds and start their programming and things like that. Oh, wow. That, That is absolutely beautiful. So what are some of the other collective economic accomplishments you guys have have made? I know there's 50 million because you talk about them in passing every time I see you. I hear something new every time. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I think about the, how we got to that PV place, which was just, I mean, just last year the funds got allocated, but that was through, you know, negotiations with the Department of Planning, um, with residents. Residents had to recreate the tax increment financing advisory panel that was key in doing a community-wide survey that informed how we would do the PB process. Um, mm-hmm. And then we have also advocated for individual TIF projects like the, the, um, the library on Chicago and Kedzie. We have advocated for over $15 million for local schools in the last 10 years, some through TIF funds, and then when they told us no to the TIF funds, it was capital funds. But um, Mm -hmm. we saw everything through a lens of how do we create local control over these tax dollars. And so Mm -hmm. even though the PV victory um, is is there, it happened through all that other collective economic justice work we were doing prior to that made the space Mm -hmm. um, for that to happen. Mm And happen with the residents, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. What's interesting, you know, as I listen to you speak, um, when I look at the typical model of economic development in in the city, um, I, I see that many agencies they tend to focus, you know, strictly on small business development. Um, they may focus strictly on affordable housing. And in some cases they do, but in many cases they don't necessarily focus on that human capital piece, really developing the people and their leadership in order to take advantage of of these opportunities. And I think you guys have done a wonderful job. Um, One thing you didn't bring up, and, you know, Kyla mentioned this when she was on the show before, and when you worked with your kids, you were also looking at ways that you could potentially create opportunities for micro-loans as a result of the TIF, you know, meaning that you'll break it up into smaller increments whereby mm-hmm. small business owners could get it and, you know, not necessarily the typical um, commercial loans that the, the city um, gives out to their small business development program. So can you give us the status of, of where that is? Yeah, so last year um, while we were negotiating on the allocation of the PB funds, the micro-lending was one of the projects the community had voted on. Um, Mm -hmm. Micro-lending through TIFs does happen in other parts of the state, um, so there is flexibility within the state law to do it. Unfortunately, um, the Department of Planning doesn't have the infrastructure in place to do it Mm -hmm. and had a a lot of hesitation around implementing that. So that's something that we're still working towards, uh, finding a happy medium for how that would work. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, that's really interesting. And, and thank you guys again for all of that work. I want to remind our listening audience that you're listening to Nonprofit You, and we're speaking with Cecile Carol DeMello. She's the co-director of Blocks Together. We'll be taking questions from our listening audience right about now if you have any. Um, if you have any questions, you feel free to give us a call at 347-884-8121. If you prefer to post your questions in the chat room, you can do so right now, and we can also share those questions with our listening audience. Uh, I also want to take a moment to let people know that they can strengthen their organization's Giving Tuesday efforts, and Giving Tuesday was last week, by participating in Webinar Wednesdays. 
every Wednesday from October 25th through this Wednesday, December 6th, I'll be conducting webinars to help organizations strengthen their fundraising efforts for the end of the year and beyond. If you have any questions, give me a call at 773-571-3886, or you can email me at consulting at valleyfleonard.com. Okay, so Lucille, not Lucille, Cecile, forgive me for that. Uh, Cecile, you'll be hosting your annual community convention this year. Um, So what are some of the events that led to the creation of the convention? Um, sure. Blocks Together has a biannual convention because it's a part of re-strategizing the issue areas and the working groups, mm-hmm. um, but also mm-hmm. an opportunity for um, those who are BT members to vote on the, on the board leadership for the next two years, which makes Blocks oh, Together awesome. a unique organization Yeah, in which the board is accountable to the members in this secular grassroots um, structure. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I was thinking it was an annual thing. You know what got me confused was last year around this time you guys rolled out your results for the, the participatory tip, um, budget. Yeah, the TIF toolkit. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, at this convention, though, it's kind of unique um, in that we'll have um, – we invited representatives from the gubernatorial candidates to come and do a meet and greet and talk a little bit about mm-hmm. their agenda here in the community. Um, I heard from um, some of the residents talking about previous state-funded um, job recovery initiatives um, and mm-hmm. wondering if that's something that the candidates were talking about. So we collected petitions throughout the community to ask for candidates to come and talk about their economic um, agenda for the state um, as it was really important to some of the members. Oh, that's interesting. So you didn't just send a letter saying, will you guys come and participate in this meet and greet? You actually listened to the people, got a sense for what the people were concerned, the people in the community, and based on what residents told you, that's how you frame the invite and share it with them, the results? Is that how that went? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. I, see, I'm taking notes. Y'all better take notes and all. <laughs> this is why Blocks Together is effective. You know, all throughout this conversation, I just want to let people know, never at any one point did you hear Cecile say that I, Cecile, did this by myself. I, Cecile, did this with Kato. It's I, Cecile, worked with the organization, worked with community residents, worked with elected officials, and she never got out there alone. She always makes sure she is operating under the cover of the community, making sure she and Kato as directors are not imposing their views on the community, but letting the community tell them what they want, and then they are representatives of the community and, and the people who work in the committees of the organization also representative. So this, this is some powerful stuff. So Thanks, if we sure, sure. So if we were to go to the convention, what might we expect when we get there? 
Sure. So um, the meet and greet will be there. Um, we have a set of questions that came up from the group of residents who are working to invite them, um, and then there will be an opportunity for residents to talk with the candidates as well. We'll be having workshops also through the day um, around the working groups, around subject matters that are um, are coming up or just re um re just talking about the facts again about those issue areas to see if we have new additional goals we want to put into our working strategies in the working groups. Um so there'll be one mm-hmm. dedicated for um education and one dedicated on um economic justice. Um and mm-hmm. then we have another working group that's gonna be working on the criminal justice system. Um, and then we will also, for those who are BT members, will have their um, time to speak to potential board members and do the final vote for them. So it will be some learning. People can come here, especially if they live on the west side, and be a part of a kind of like a governor forum um, and hear directly about the issues of each candidate, mm-hmm. um, which I think is important um, for communities to have these candidates come and speak to residents. A lot of times they're at those bigger voting um, uh, groups, but it's important to hear from folks that are not in those networks what uh, mm-hmm. what, they're, what they need as well. Okay. So the um – the meet and greet, that will be first, and then you'll have the convention or the meet and greet yes. will be in the middle? Okay. The meet and greet and, and then the working group and then the convention piece. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is awesome. So will the meet and greet be structured or will you just treat it, you know, like a reception and people can just have their one-on-one? It will with, it'll be structured so to make sure that some of those questions around economic development are addressed. Um, mm-hmm. It gets to talk about their platform, um, and then mm-hmm. uh, there'll be an opportunity for people to interact with that platform after those questions are answered around economic development. And, you know, what I like is you, you know, again, as I hear you talk, you're interjecting everything that blocks together is all about in your whole approach. You know, just everything you do, you're focusing on what's the agenda for blocks together, how can we make sure that the agenda for the people is served, how can we make sure that our elected officials are responsive, how can we make sure that our city government, state government are responsive. And, you know, and I think that's some valuable lessons, you know, that I'm learning, I'm hearing, and I'm processing, and I'm hoping that our audience is, you know, listening and processing that too. So when we look at registration, how can we register? Do we go to a website to register? Do we need to call a number to register? You can actually just always be at the Blocks Together email address, which is blockstogether, all one word, at gmail.com. Okay, awesome. And then where will the convention be held this year? It's going to be at uh, Royal Clark High School, located at 3645 West Chicago Avenue. Okay, that's great. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So finally, I want to remind our listening audience one more time that you're listening to Nonprofit You. 
We're speaking with Cecile Carol DeMello. She's the co-director of Blacks Together. She's cutting our heads open and giving us some wonderful information, as always. And if you have any questions, this is your last opportunity. The phone number is 347-884-8121. If you're in the chat room, this is your last opportunity to post. Please post, and we can share the questions on air. So who has confirmed? Have any of the candidates confirmed so far? Yes. So um, all of we have um, all of the Democrat Republican candidates are sending their running mates, with the exception mm-hmm. of T.O. Hardiman, who will be present Saturday. Okay. We are still waiting for a response from the Republican. Actually, my fault. Uh, we're also from from J.B. Pritzker as well. Okay. So so um, J.B. Pritzker will be sending Juliana, well, Representative Juliana Stratton in his stead. Is that what I'm hearing? No, I mean, I was I confused you. Um, but they're the only Democratic um, candidate who has not responded yet. Oh, he has not responded yet. Okay. Yes, I can't think he hasn't responded just, yet. Okay, and just so people know, um, from what I read, J.B. Pritzker is the front runner, or he is positioning himself as the front runner on the Democratic side, and he has not yet responded. And the other candidates have decided, or they're sending their running mates who will actually be candidates for lieutenant governor, and the only one who is not sending his running mate or her running mate is Teal Hardiman, who is actually a gubernatorial candidate himself. Is is that what I heard you say? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you didn't editorialize. I, I was editorializing on, yes. on the other side. Okay. Yeah, I want to make it clear. Cecile Carol DeBello did not give any political opinion, you know, any any opinion or editorializing was mine, but I was just restating, you know, the facts of who has called in, um, who has responded. And, you know, it's still early. They, they've got time. There's a lot of moving parts. So hopefully they, they will all be in attendance. Okay, so as we wrap this up and looking at the totality of the work that you've done in economic development, in education, leadership development, community organizing, what are three of the top lessons that that you've learned over the years? Did you say three? Yes, ma'am. Oh, okay. I was ready for one. I, I can do three. Oh, um, well, one. Well, one of the most important things that I like to talk about with um, organizing work or interactive development work in um, communities uh, like West Humble Park um, is thinking about the implementation after you win something. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, from our experience with the task force and a lot of other institutional and policy change that we've made in the community, sometimes the work starts after you have won that thing, right? And so... um, (laughs) They lose um, our stamina a lot of times, and and we'll move on, but um, we'll turn around, and that same thing we fought for is end up being a, a weapon against us, right? So 
mm-hmm. the the implementation is important. Um, something that um, you know is critical about organizing work um, the way we organize is um, sometimes you're going to do things with residents and um, it may not work out, and that's okay. So um, if you're mm-hmm. not um, learning lessons with people. Um, and letting us make our own mistakes, even if you as an organizer are like, mm, I don't know if we should do this, it's important for the people to take the lead of the strategy and not an individual. And um, mm-hmm. that's one of the things that I have appreciated working here versus a lot of other opportunities sometimes that um, that were centered around organizing. That sometimes it's just what the organizer mm-hmm. says, and that's good mm-hmm. too because most of us do this work from a good place, but sometimes it's something too those members learning it on their own. And we try to make space for that here at Blocks Together. We feel like it mm-hmm. builds political leadership in a in a strong way. Um, and I think the last thing I would say would be to have fun while you're doing it because this work <laughs> can be real daunting. It can be hard. Yes, yes, it can yes. be um, – so it's um, – it can – like I said, like the 2013 school closures impacted me personally for a long time after the vote happened and um, mm-hmm. finding joy in the people we work with and in the small victories is important too. And I, I feel like it gives you, um, it's, it's, it can be inspiring when you don't have any mm-hmm. more place to pull inspiration. Yeah, right. I tell you, I commend you. I definitely commend you. And as you were talking, I'm reminded of the old saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with the people. And they take a little bit longer, but you're definitely creating a large footprint. And and the work that you do, you know, I'm admiring from afar. You know, I'm not a, not with you guys as much as I like to be, but I'm, I'm definitely taking note. I'm like, oh, that, that's some great stuff they're doing. They're still out there. So I, I thank you guys for, for teaching me. You don't even know that you're teaching me. So Thanks, we've Al. come to the oh, – you're quite welcome. We, we've come to the end of our show, and I'd like to thank once more Cecile Kildum-Sellum, who will be the guest today. Um, Cecile, is there anything you'd like to share, you know, before you go? Tell us how you can be reached. And, again, tell us, you know, one more time how we can register for the convention. Sure, you can register in the convention at blockstogether at gmail.com. If you're interested and want to be on the mailing list or the call list, you can also do it there um, and do a lot of Facebook invitations too. Um, and our website is not always up to date like it should be, but it's www.btchicago.org. Um, and our phone number here at the office is 773-940-2319. Awesome, awesome. So I want to thank our listening audience once more for listening to Nonprofit You blog radio talk show today. The podcast will be available for download within about an hour's time. Please be sure and join us next week, and you'll be able to hear John Kerrigan. John Kerrigan is the founder and CEO of JourneyMap. We're going to talk about his new book and how the customer experience as well as the employee experience can drive value for nonprofits and other social enterprises. So I will talk to you next week. Cecile, thanks again. You take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, Valerie. Bye.
Mm-hmm. 